0: Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep with Professor Toby Walsh, an expert in artificial intelligence and author of the new book, Machines Behaving Badly. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital White Swatch Chair Lizzie O'Shea and Guardian Australia reporter Josh Taylor. I kind of wanted to make this week an Elon free zone, but I also feel that it's been such a big thing that we'll say it's an almost Elon free zone and just have a really quick hot take from everyone. A fortnight ago, we were talking about Musk taking um, a significant stake, but not kind of going all the way and taking over Twitter. And I don't know, Lizzie, what do you make of it all? Uh. Hot take.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do not like Elon Musk. I think it's bad when he seeks to purchase what is essentially a bit of digital infrastructure that we rely on to facilitate public discussions. E.D. James for Digital Rights Watch wrote a nice piece in Overland, which we've just posted in the chat, talking about why we're concerned about this. Um, but yeah, I would love to be in a world where we talk less about Elon Musk, I have to say.
0: Josh, got a hot take?
2: Well, I actually think part of the reason for his wanting to purchase this is so that we talk about him some more. It's very sort of... Um trying to get attention i think i thought that this was going to go ahead early in the week and now i'm seeing more and more signs that um you know just the financing aspect of it might be a little bit more complicated than people might have imagined and the the fact that tesla shares have been going down and and the fact that the deal is entirely funded through debt could mean that it just falls apart in the next couple of days and he seems to be kind of posting through it as though he doesn't care if it keeps going off walls apart so a
0: professional troll i feel
3: (laughs) the right
0: platform toby
3: what have you what's your hot take i actually met elon and i think he should stick to his goal of of getting rockets to mars and not uh, i wouldn't put him give him the responsibility of policing one of the most important town squares that we have left
0: and i guess my hot take is just that despite all the hand-wringing no one will actually leave twitter if he does take it over and that includes you lizzie o'shea because i know it's your your platform of choice
1: it's my platform of choice for distributing cat content. I never I made out like I was going to leave. I don't think that really solves our problems. I mean, there's plenty of other platforms who are owned by bad people. I think let's get billionaires out of the you out of the digital door? infrastructure. Space or oh, digital rights watched yeah, yeah. yeah for sure that's true i mean yeah that was around the media bargaining code but the decision by facebook to try and influence that legislative debate debate by removing all news content which we thought was just highly irresponsible at a time of a global pandemic but yeah there's definitely an argument to be made that while these platforms are in the hands of billionaires we need to make our work as advocates and community builders more resilient by not relying on the whims of billionaires to be able to succeed so we certainly look all the time for ways to do that and use other platforms and twitter but we don't have a plan to to leave twitter at this point so we'll see
0: um, let's get into the news of the week i thought i'd kick off with you josh we're in the middle of an election campaign you're doing what journalists do and sort of investigating the, the national interest from a variety of issues. You were telling me that you've been looking at the National Broadband Network and that boulevard of broken dreams. Um, <laughs> what are you finding? Yeah, so um, we did
2: a call out um, to our readers not that long ago, asking for them what some of their big election issues were. And one of the one that sort of came up A few times and and has kind of flown under the radar this election was the mbn and um it's interesting because we're we're now at a stage where you know the government two years ago declared that the rollout was finished but in the intervening couple of years has spent all this time and money essentially now going back and upgrading a whole bunch of different parts of the network that they said were fine a couple of years ago and filling in a lot of the gaps and and a lot of the the feedback that we were getting was along the lines of say for example people who got fiber to the node were finding that they weren't getting the speeds or or reliability of service that they wanted people who were on the, the fixed wireless or satellite were saying it was the both of those technologies are far too congested and now you can tell that the government was seeing that this is going to be an issue for them so um, just prior to the election they announced they be moving a whole bunch of the satellite customers onto the fixed wireless and upgrading the fixed wireless which would make both services somewhat better and they've also um, started doing upgrades to fiber to the node to to full fiber in certain areas and then uh, in a very classic this government move they've also got a um, grants program that they've been having running for a couple of years now called the regional connectivity program which basically, in addition to funding a whole bunch of mobile towers and things like that, in select areas, it's quite successful in in sort of getting certain areas upgraded to full fiber in a lot of places. So um, I, I wrote a story a little while ago about a business in Barnaby Joyce's electorate got their, their they, they, they upgraded, they're going to upgrade, they haven't done it yet, a single fiber connection to a single business in his electorate for $500,000 under this program. So they're definitely quite aware that this is an ongoing election issue but it's kind of a sleeper issue at the moment and and labor has made moves around saying we're going to you know do a a lot of the same stuff that coalition is doing but they're saying that they're going to upgrade more fiber to the node people than than they're currently planned on on the current government and i think that's probably where the issue lies at the moment because there's a lot of people that were were talking to us who were essentially saying look i can't get decent internet but i can see you know A couple of blocks away, my neighbour has full fibre to the premises and I don't understand why I have terrible internet and they do not.
0: It doesn't seem that long ago that Malcolm Turnbull was reassuring us that all we'd need the NBN for was to download Netflix and everything would be okay. And of course, and you can see when you're running events and work over this platform, when it starts lagging, it has a real impact on everyone that's involved in the collaboration, not just the individual person. Lizzie, it's always been a bit like this was the analogy of the road um, in terms of public infrastructure. It feels to me it's more like the health system and you actually need to have this working, you know, to have a healthy, connected society.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's something that people expect of government. I'm really glad that you've been looking at this issue, Josh, because sometimes I feel like the political media don't think that infrastructure stuff is interesting to citizens uh, and this is being an infrastructure topic but it does sort of mean that people like Barnaby Joyce get a free pass as though he's advocating for the bush but in a context in which his government has kind of presided over a slapdash shoddy version of what we were originally promised when it came to the NBN and I mean, I do always wonder why um, the Labor Party doesn't do more campaigning against nationals, because I think they've got a good story to tell about investment in infrastructure and having visions for things like the MBN. but, you know, that this is something that the coalition isn't necessarily prepared to spend money on to the level that's necessary to make it work. And this is increasingly someone something people have engaged with every day. It's even more than I think the health system because every day lots and lots of people get online and if they're not in a metro area they struggle with connectivity issues. So it's a constant reminder that our infrastructure is deficient. So I am really glad that you're covering it because sometimes I think journalists aren't always attuned to these issues and it is an everyday issue for people. I mean I think it's also clear that um, in the context of ongoing natural disasters and the like that we also need a rapid response program in place to allow people to get online even for you know communicating about the natural disaster itself but also getting back up and running after some of these disasters too and too often, I think that's been left to industry. When I think the government could probably invest in that better as well. But yeah, that's um, I, I do. I do think there's probably votes to be won on this, even more so perhaps than investment in things like roads and and health and even education. Like I think there's. a, am sort of surprised it's not campaigned on at a greater level, especially given the promise that was made and the lengthy time in which the coalition sort of had to implement it and the failures that we've seen along the way.
0: Yeah, Toby connectivity in your work like how important or how destructive is a lagging internet for the sort of
3: work you do i think importantly it's a public good I mean we've realized we used to we used to smile when people said that the internet's going to be considered a public good and it clearly is data will always expand to meet the bandwidth available you have to keep on investing in it and um, it's not sexy, it's not glamorous, but it will power the uh, advances of intelligence and the like in the future.
0: Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing it in print or at least the Guardian version of print online next week, Josh. Mm. But yeah, Godspeed on that. So Obama, to his credit, recognises and concedes he was overly optimistic about the way the internet would transform the world. For those who remember his administration boosted the tech sector at family nurtured one of the evil geniuses of surveillance capitalism cheryl sandberg obama is now calling for regulation and intervention and wants to reform section 230 of the communications decency act the law that basically gives website platforms immunity for content of the parties and on this, he's clearly swimming with the global tide, and there's lots of moves, as we all know, we've spoken about, to either break big tech up or re- in, in the States or regulate it in, a, in Australia and other countries. It seems to me, and I'm I'm really interested in the rest of the panel's thoughts on this, the declaration on the future of the internet seems to swim in the opposite direction. So on behalf of the 60 signatories who appear to be the dwindling list of world democracies, it, it's basically a call for a free and open internet. and This is obviously directed immediately at Russia and more broadly China, which have both used access to the net as a tool for managing their populations. Uh, I know we discussed the difference between the architecture and the platforms with Paul Toomey a few weeks back, but it does strike me there is a dissonance emerging here. And I wonder if the free open dichotomy is the most useful way of understanding these dynamics so lizzie i'm interested in your take but also as our resident lawyer what is the actual effect of a declaration or is it just a press release
1: That's, that's rough, Peter. I think probably it's closer to a press release than anything in enforceable for sure. So, yeah, there's a whole uh, internet trope, I guess, trope in the law about how international law doesn't exist, so that it's not technically enforceable. This isn't even really an international legal document. So I think it's a statement of intent and little more. I'm not sure it would be enforceable. I think it's interesting that you've kind of framed it in that way, that, you know, how do we talk about power in the context of the internet and what negative consequences have been produced as a result of that centralization and where is it centralised? Because. Uh, I think you're right to point out that it's somewhat contradictory to Obama's recent turnaround on, I suppose, the potential of the tech industry and and big tech platforms and uh, the difficulties that they've presented for democracies around the world. But this document looks much more like about how important developing economic opportunities in a a digital environment are. It explicitly talks about the multi-stakeholder model, which, as I understand it, is, is a clear commitment to involving the tech industry in discussions about regulation and standards where that sometimes is controversial, certainly for civil society people, but in in government settings as well, where there's an argument that perhaps tech companies have had too much power in determining what regulatory reform looks like. Uh, But this document is clearly committed and does repeat in a few occasions the discussion about the the economic activity and allowing people to make use of the web in economic terms, as well as obviously in cultural and, and political ones too. And There is probably a bit of a contradiction there. I think it is interesting as well, of course, as somebody who advocates for digital rights, that uh, the question of surveillance is pretty much missing when it comes to governments and how they surveil their citizens, because on that front, liberal democracies uh, start to look a little bit too much like the authoritarians they're trying to define themselves as against uh, because they... They do engage in mass surveillance on a regular basis and share knowledge that comes about as a result of those activities. And so our friends at Access Now put out a statement that covers some of these issues and points out the fact that uh, surveillance is left out of this discussion and this declaration And that if democracies were interested in preserving themselves in the digital age and making their systems more robust uh, and future-proof, then curbing the limits of the surveillance state is probably a key priority in achieving that goal. But this is not something they particularly want to contend with. So that's the other kind of issue I wanted to put in the mix in terms of Mm. discussing this declaration.
0: Hey, Josh, one of the great internet contrarians, Corey Doctorow, sort of put out a response to um, Obama this week as well, and he accuses Obama of committing the sin of criti hype, <laughs> Ben Sol's incredibly useful term for criticisms that repeat the self-serving myths of the subject of the critique. Every time we say that big tech is using machine learning to brainwash people, we give big tech a giant boost. Um, and this has been something he's gone on a number of times. I'm interested in your take on that.
2: Governments are very sort of anti-tech now and also the population is sort of wising up to some of the stuff the government's doing i mean obama it's it's kind of funny for obama to sort of say that when it was under his administration that the guardian revealed all the spying and collection of data that the us government was doing at the time and so yeah it's it's a bit rich it's one of those it's one of those things that i just don't really sort of buy into and it's like you know you see australia is a signatory to that we've um, and the current government has presided over just a vast amount of national security legislation that it's is going Directly against people's privacy and and uh, the the freedom that they have online. You know, you've got you've got before the election, the government was trying to bring in legislation that would would effectively de de people, which does have the impact of, you know, making it much harder for people to have free and open conversation online because they're worried about, you know, having their identities revealed, particularly if they live in countries where that you know they could be persecuted for their views, or even in Australia where. If um, someone works for a company, they they say something that people don't like. They can go to the employer and try and get them fired, stuff like that. Um, it it is kind of I don't know. I just it it, it all is all very rich to me. You know, watching from the outside when when I see these sort of statements, they they look very nice and they 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 have very good like notions and, and ideals. But the it's always the practices. Things so I, I find this generally with Australia statements as well. As I guess a lot of Western country statements is it's it's very much do as we say, not as we do in a lot of these cases. Yeah.
3: Well, I think there's a very dangerous idea to say that you know we, we just blame the algorithm as Obama was was saying in his speech because that suggests that there's a better algorithm. We just we just haven't come with the right algorithm, and I suspect it's actually the, the whole system as a whole. If you try to decide you know what to what news to promote based upon likes and and um clicks that whatever algorithm you have there you're going to encourage you know polarized debate and you're going to have these flame wars, um and and you're going to end up in with the the loudest people being heard so i i think it's it's really dangerous and 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 somewhat ironic coming from obama um you know i have some respect for for his administration especially what he did nationally not so much for what he did internationally but i'm worried worried that he's getting amnesia because he was the first president to weaponize social media to get himself elected. At the time, you know, we thought it was a good thing that he was using social media to encourage young people, especially to go out and vote, to encourage black people to vote. Uh, we thought that was a good thing, but that it was the, those very same ideas and algorithms that were being used weaponized by Trump and others, for yeah. um, but, but, you know, less um, worthy ends. Absolutely. We all thought that the
0: web was inherently um, progressive because of Obama, which has always, to me, been like the, the anti-Hitler. It's like, it's just, you can't make the argument because he was a once-in-a-generation politician. And if it had been carrier pigeons, I reckon we would have thought carrier pigeons were a really progressive medium because it would have got Obama elected. But yeah. Lizzie, last, last news story. Google is not just telling us now how to think, but also how to write. And they have launched a new feature where you're, they're going to tell you the right words to use. Is this going to improve all our collective literacy?
1: Yeah, there's a nice little motherboard article about this. Um they talk about Clippy, which people who people may who who people may remember. Is Clippy an actual entity? It's hard to tell. But um from the, Microsoft, the cartoon,
0: yeah.
1: The, the Microsoft, yeah. The Microsoft paper clip that gives you suggestions for how to do things. And apparently everybody hated Clippy. I felt Clippy quite a friendly character, but anyway, Clippy's been retired and um they compared this to Clippy being a prompting tool when you're using Google documents about appropriate language to use. And uh, it strikes me as a very American concept because often the language as you type it in to the Google document, it will say, oh, this is this is a bit uninclusive and you may want to try using these words instead. And I mean, apart from just being an abuse on language, I think as a general proposition, it does raise some concerns about how they've designed this and what the effect of their, those design decisions might be. The example that I think is perhaps most telling is someone has a, a nice little screenshot of where they use the word landlord, and this is described as potentially, you know, controversial, and that the person may wish to use the word proprietor instead. Uh, which suggests to me somehow the landlord lobby has gotten into Google's ear. To you know, landlords landlords have been poorly portrayed and need to have their their terminology sanitised so that people won't feel as outraged about their social position as they perhaps currently do. Uh, And... I find this stuff to be so insidious because it's it suggests that there's a bunch of human decisions that have gone into making this, but it looks like um, it has the cleanliness of an automated process, and the objectivity associated with that, that somehow there is an agreed set of language which is not controversial as opposed to language that is, and that we should be striving to sanitise our language from terms that might offend. And mm. and really all these things are, are very much subjective, culturally specific, contextual and and perhaps don't reflect the intention of the writer and having that dictated to you as a user of a product by google just feels so offensive so i just i, I really hate it i mean i think there's some things we can also perhaps deduce about why it is that google feels like this is an appropriate thing service to yeah um but also like what kind of data set they're training on and, and using to identify um, language that's likely to be offensive so they talk about putting in a speech from a, a right-wing figure and getting no you know using offensive racial slurs getting no suggestions for improvements and then um, you know other more lyrical texts sanitized to lose all their rhetorical mm. weight I think it really gives us an opportunity to query what kind of uh, processes they're employing to deploy these tools and that it seems like an automated process but it's still a human one and I think that it's an important little porthole through which you can see how some of these bigger automated artificial intelligence concepts processes and products get built and why we might have pause to be critical of them which is why I'm glad we've got Toby here Mm -hmm. today but that's I just wanted to put it into the mix.
0: Hey, um, Josh, one of the saddest days of my professional career was leaving newspapers and losing the sub-editor. Like, you know, mm. is this any different than the backbench? This is
2: one of those kind of things where it would be good for Google to be completely transparent and we can see the algorithmic decisions and how it was all formed. If we could see what the basis of everything was, rather than going into a black box, we might have a better understanding of how it works and people might be more open to it. Um, I Yeah, I, I think if it was like, if they did it, as like an enterprise product where, say, if the Guardian had it and I could throw in, our style guide and when I'm writing a story it would say that's not actually in your style guide. That's that would be a much better way of doing it in my in my view. Like uh, it would it would save us so much time. But but then that would mean that we could see where the decisions are being made. We can see this is, you know, you can look up the style guide on our website now and see, well, this is why the decisions are being made in this particular way. And I think it's just it's the lack of transparency in the and the just uh, it kind of going into a black box that I think scares people a lot I mean like people already have you know if if you if you use a iPhone keyboard or something like that it already kind of predicts what you're going to say and that's based on how you normally talk in, in, in these sorts of programs as well so I think everyone's kind of gotten used to that but they don't want someone else to be dictating how they're speaking and and, and i guess influencing the language that they're using unless it's unless it's your employer like in my case you actually
1: insist also, on the lowercase so um lowercase acronyms because they drive me down <laughs> anyway
2: uh, like i've up. adjusted to those i've adjusted to those. i'm an uppercase
0: guy um <laughs> yeah. but it speaks to something bigger which really upset me when my kids started going to high school which which is the conformity of language right And the conformity of telling stories and the kids are now taught they've got to write every paragraph in a certain structure the peel. And I I get, I, I feel that part of it is they're setting it up so that all their essays can be marked by computers rather than real people. But it also takes the joy and the delight out of writing and everything's a chore. So I'm not saying that we wrote better growing up, but we had freedom to sort of express our ideas. You can just feel it all being contained and held back. And, I I know that's a long way from Clippy to saying that they're repressing my kids' creativity, but there is a there is a line there, and it's this thing that there is a right way, and then there there are wrong ways.
2: I reckon I reckon legal is much more of an impact on on the way I can express myself
3: than (laughs) than, than anything else.
0: I don't know if Toby's still with us. I I just lost his camera, but I'm here. Yeah, hello, Um, Lizzie.
3: um, Eric Horvitz was the inventor. A friend of mine was the inventor of Clippy, and he was so upset because he said. Uh, Microsoft really messed it up. They made it much more intrusive than, than oh, he invented So, uh, but but I think you know the, the fundamental challenge here is that computers don't understand language. They understand statistics about language, but they don't understand the language itself. And so we're we're falling into a trap um, of thinking that they that they do understand language. And actually, interestingly, there's a real worry in the machine learning community that they we're going out and we're training all these systems on the internet. Literally, <laughs> you crawl the whole internet, and vast bits of the internet are now this now text that was written by other computers and it's eating its own its own dog food and so we may end up you know with these systems um, speaking their own own version of English because um, that was the, the version that the machines were producing in the past.
1: I know I find this so interesting Toby I mean we're going to stray into talking about your book but we're, we're about to do it anyway I think but um, natural language processing like how you teach a computer to understand natural language i take your point maybe you can never really teach it right but um you know there's a whole controversy around the fact that you might use a, a google news text database as the the training database for a machine to learn about how to process natural language but inherent in that language is probably sexist terminology or racist terminology and not even necessarily uh used in a oppressive way but you know if you if you had an article about ceos you might point out that 80 percent of them are men and so then the computer might correctly interpret that ceos are associated with men when in fact we might think that's problematic and you can see how there's inherent difficulties on training a computer or seeking to train a machine on a cohort of data which is invariably biased which then has an impact in how you might get a tool like this on a google document where terms are flagged as controversial which in fact reflect a value set that hasn't been properly interrogated it's just been spat out the back of a machine that then looks neutral and objective and i wondered if you had any thoughts about that
3: hundred percent i mean, actually uh, you know some of the very earliest work in natural language was work where everything was trained on the enron database so there was a transcripts of from um, enron um, which which is a completely biased data set i mean there's, it's mostly male people speaking there's some quite there's some quite rude language being used uh, and and the tone of, of you know of the conversations you can imagine all of this corruption that was going on in Enron at the time, is mean, something that you wouldn't want perpetuated. But, yeah, a lot of, a lot of natural language uh, programs were uh, trained on that um, to begin with. Now, now it's more broadly the internet. But, but again, it's not necessarily representative of um, language as well.
0: but But my, my final question before we round this, Lizzie, is it the bias that is the problem? Is it the very fact that we've got this tool that is telling us how to express ourselves, which is the problem? Oh, I I think they're both a problem, aren't
1: they? I mean, even if you could train it really well, do we want Google being the people that determine what is and is an offensive language that might need to be edited to be more inclusive? That strikes me as an extremely culturally specific conclusion that comes out of, um, you know, an American tradition of speech and engagement and politeness. And I'm not sure that you necessarily want that to be handed to a company to do in a ubiquitous product. So I can understand why it might be useful for me to get, you know, when I'm using legal terms as well, I might be the same as you, Josh, when I'm running legal documents. I want to have suggestions for how to do that correctly and it might save me time, but I I can't imagine that. Oh, your whole
0: career is going to be taken over by machines, Lizzie, isn't it?
1: Hey, come on. Um, There's still some legal deductive reasoning i can contribute but yeah i don't I, so i don't think that a company should be doing that without any transparency and even if they did do it transparently i think it is very difficult to do it well i mean i mean this is one of my questions for toby what is uh machine learning good at doing and what should we, we be asking it to do i think there's a real question around that like and it's not necessarily the answers are not necessarily what's reflected in how it is currently being used which is i think far more ubiquitously than it perhaps ought um, when it can't be trusted. I don't even know how you could get it to a point to be trusted, I suppose, is my point. So I don't like it intruding into the writing process, but I don't even like the idea of it at all. Can I,
0: can I use that as a segue into the deep dive? Toby, welcome. Your new book looks at the ways artificial intelligence is reshaping the world. And while you're an expert in AI, you are not a tech exceptionalist. Um, and I love your critical eye and the way i think rare in an academic we actually i think have the mind of a tabloid reporter as well so respect so i, I hope that's a quite, compliment i yeah. totally as a former
3: tabloid reporter you mean i make it accessible not that i make it sensational
0: well i've always been a big fan of the tabloid format i think you Thank reduce you. things down to its core and that's what you do so before we go in apart from contractual
3: obligations what was the motivation for this book it was because uh, people like you and uh, journalists would ring me up pretty much every day and ask me questions about largely about fails of the tech industry um questions about the ethics of what was going on um, and i wanted to think through carefully the issues my, for myself um, and try and explain at least from a technical perspective uh, where i saw the issues arising and th- i mean this isn't the first technology that's touched our lives and most of the time i was saying that you know if this wasn't digital if this was people doing this in the real world you'd be upset as well this is just bad, old-fashioned bad behavior and we should be upset at the tech companies do behaving badly um, just because they're using digital tools to do it we should um, and um, also a wake-up call i think for for politicians and regulators saying oh, wait wait a second we can't we can't let this space now it is one of the most important industries industry sectors out there we need to think carefully about how we apply existing laws and we don't i don't think we apply existing laws forcefully enough to the tax base and, and where we, we might need um, new laws not because there are new ethical problems. I think there's a lot of ethical washing going on, but but suddenly um, the technology lets us break things you know quicker, faster, cheaper than we have in the past, and we may need to to make sure that you know we rein in worst behaviours.
0: I was actually talking to one of your colleagues this morning, who I won't name, who said the thing about Toby is a lot of the work he does is really pretty boring, particularly around transport logistics, which I I think. It's interesting to start with a really useful use of AI to create more efficient,
3: environmentally friendly flows. Yeah, yeah. so, so yeah, I do stuff, routing trucks uh, more smartly so that they, they um, it saves 10% of the transport bill of a big multinational company here in Australia and that's um, very good for their bottom line but also it's very good for the planet. That's 10% less CO2 every year because um, pretty much all of that cost saving is in diesel fuel. So where is the
0: point where you go from, or what is the inflection point between a useful application of the technology and where you see problems emerging?
3: But, but even there, we, we, we worried about, you know, are we pushing the drivers too hard now? Because we're actually getting, getting them to work more efficiently. They're not, not wasting uh, as much time as they used to. Are the drivers, drivers going to be happy? And so it was really important to me when we did that work but not only did the company come back to me and say, "Well, we've reduced our transport bill, they are spending eighty million dollars a year on transport, we've reduced that transport bill by ten percent. But the driver's satisfaction has gone up. That was actually, I think for me as important as saying that that we'd um, reduce the save the money and reduce their c o two footprint was that the drivers were happier. But that wasn't a given.
1: So can I ask you, Toby, it seems to me that I think this is a really important contribution because you're obviously extremely well credentialed in this field. And it's really important, I think, for people with that kind of stature to question and criticise some of the worst excesses of the industry of government use of AI as well. But it did seem to me as well, or maybe I'm reading too much into the text, but there was probably a point at which you started to notice that there were big problems that needed fixing or that you perhaps shifted from someone who was very optimistic and um, perhaps a utopian about technology towards someone who is becoming more critical Am I reading that right? Was there a point at which that occurred or do you think that you still encounter colleagues who are extremely optimistic or un, uh, less critical than you about the potential of the field and, and you're now, you, you've shifted from where you were or, or, or what's the process? Because that's this this book feels a little bit like a productive reflection of your time in, in the space and the problems that you've encountered again
3: and again. It is. I I, I think that's a a reflection i think of, men, of many of my colleagues journey in the last half a dozen years um if you went back half a dozen years most of us weren't too worried about the impact of what we were doing because most of it was was still stuck in the laboratory but in the last half a dozen years it really has very rapidly left not only left the laboratory but start to have impact. some of them positive and some of them somewhat negative and with that comes i think a huge responsibility I, mean, I don't think these are questions that that people like myself should be answering as a whole, um, I should be contributing to these conversations. That's what you know. part of the book was there was to try and um, inform people about, about you know, at least from a technical perspective, what are the opportunities, what are the risks? But these are technologies that touch all of society and all of society should be involved in those conversations. We need lawyers like yourself to to help us think through how we need to regulate properly. We need politicians to be engaged. We need all of civil society um, because it touches all of civil society to to be involved. And so from from everyone from the youngest person to the eldest person in society, they need to be um, thinking about, you know ultimately, what sort of society we will build, because these technologies are going to help us build um the society of tomorrow. and and there are lots of choices. there are there are good futures that we could have, and there are not so good futures. And you only have to look at places like China to see you can use these technologies in ways that we will find, know very very challenging to to surveil the population to suppress minorities to you know impose authoritarian rule upon a state equally they could be used to to you know enhance democracy we saw that in the arab spring we saw we see these technologies being used to give voice to people who previously didn't have voice but but you know that equally we see twitter being um being used by QAnon and people to to spread untruths and to promote you know vaccine vaccine hesitancy lots of things that that are not actually helpful to society
0: hey josh yes. okay. so, i just sorry josh for a sec so when i see ai reported in the media it's almost like it's cure for cancer stories or it's the world's going to end stories what what challenges do you have as a journey trying to get the nuance into talking about issues like this well i think
2: like a little bit sort of to what toby was saying is that i think a lot of the issues that we see with ai in how we report it is just in terms of um for every time you every time you want to blame ai say something for something that's gone wrong come back to there was a human at the start of the process that that put these these ideas in and, and stuffed up the, the one that i always think of is like robo debt for example where they knew what they were doing and it was a foreseeable outcome and yet they still went ahead with it and and all these people started getting letters that shouldn't have gotten letters because they, they just averaged the, the income over an entire year. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I constantly think I think probably my, my question to Toby would be, so it's, it's a cliche at this point that regulation often lags very, very much behind tech and they're constantly left catching up. Are we at a point yet where it's, where it's too late, where things have gone too far or is there still sort of an opportunity to sort of, get in early and, and sort of set the rules around these things before it gets away from us?
3: Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure it's not too late to, to, to regulate. I mean, the fact that Facebook continued for, for a number of years to, to, to offer um, housing adverts that were racially, racially profiled, where there's actually a federal law that prohibits that. Um, you know, why didn't, why didn't the regulator step in more vigorously and force them to stop? um discriminating against um people based on race for housing adverts and job adverts when there was actually a, a federal law to prevent it um, but but equally i think we're waking up to the idea that um it is very worthwhile and necessary to regulate the digital space we see especially in europe um lots of lots of progress on that but but equally um you know we've seen regulation here in australia I th- and i think you know, what, what's interesting is to see that probably the most appropriate Level at which to regulate is at the national level, mm. um, and that's um, and that is actually remarkably effective. It, even though these are these are multinational co- companies with global footprints, um, why was it that the the tech companies pushed back so hard about the, the media bargaining laws? Is because they realised that Australia was going to set a very important precedent, and it did. You know, France has very similar laws. Other countries are adopting those laws now. Uh, you can set a, a, a really important precedent, um, and indeed. If you want to have impact, um, I think it's it's worth thinking about. Most of the regulation, effective regulation is going to happen by our national governments realizing that the worst excesses need to be reined in.
2: I covered a um, uh, court case the other week. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, that. There was an inventor who was trying to get his, um, inv- his AI inventions patented. Uh, in, and in Australia, he was unsuccessful, but he appealed it to the, the federal court and then won that case. And then on the full appeal uh, earlier this month, that, that overturned the appealing. So, um, But it, I thought the, the comments in the judgment were quite interesting in that. They, they kind of hedged it a little bit. They were saying, um, we're not really sort of, discussing the question about whether ai can actually be an inventor in this particular case but we see that as more of a role of uh the parliament to make a, a decision then we'll interpret that legislation so it's interesting that they like they were very much keen to be seen to be seen as, you know, the the courts aren't going to decide this. This is something for the parliament to actually decide when it comes to that.
1: I understand the importance of regulation. I know it's really easy to criticise regulators for being slow or the law for being slow. But equally what I would say is, you know, Clearview AI I think is a really interesting example where our privacy regulator here has said basically that they broke the law in their program that was based on machine learning using data sets that were essentially stolen. And uh, Clearview AI has just ignored it you know, they are continuing to sell their products to law enforcement agencies around the world and the like. And I do wonder whether we also do need bans, like whether before we talk about um, making the process of generating artificial intelligence products ethical, we also need to say, well, no, some of this stuff shouldn't happen at all. And I wondered what you thought about that, Toby, whether you thought that we do need to start thinking about some of these questions from an original sin almost perspective like do we want to proceed down this path at all can we rely on data sets that have been obtained without consent that are um, problematic and biased for all sorts of reasons can we ever correct properly for that using machine learning so does the question kind of predate the, the the creation of the product or the service what do you think about that as a potential way of regulating or at least enforcing community standards on um on the field
3: it's interesting to see that in a number of places that they're actually um, forcing algorithms to be deleted where they've been trained on data that was obtained um, in controversial circumstances. I think we'll see a lot more of that. But, but equally, I think we will see a, a more red lines being drawn. We see this in the new EU, EU AI Act. There are you know, certain uses of um, certain technologies that will be prohibited in in, in Europe. Um, I mean, the fundamental challenge you have is that these are all dual-use dual technologies. So you take something like face recognition, and I'm increasingly of the view that perhaps we should just not allow face recognition. There are just so many harms that can be done with it, um, so many invasions of our privacies, so many ways that it can be misused that probably um, we should just allow it. But equally, there are you know, there are positive uses. There are you know a, a number of examples. There were thousands of, of, of uh, children in orphanages in Delhi. who were were lost and reunited with their parents using face recognition software. It's used by a number of NGOs around the world to combat um, child pornography and child trafficking, an immense evil. um, And you can't possibly scan all the faces on the internet by by eye, but you can get algorithms to do that, facial recognition algorithms to do that. So there's a great evil that's being combated with facial recognition. But equally, as you say, Clearview is, is the, is the tech model of, of, of ignoring regulation, the same but one that Uber and others have done.
0: Clearview is uh, also being used, apparently, by the Ukrainian army to identify invasion. captured Russian soldiers and then ring their mums.
3: <laughs> now, ring, ring that's but, but, but also that's it's, going be used, it's going to be used to, to help uh, prosecute war crimes. So people, you know, video and footage of, of, of soldiers committing war, war crimes will be used in face recognition. Um, So, again, positive uses and negative uses. It never goes away with this technology. I remember you've also been
0: a strong advocate to ban um, drone warfare, and I'm interested in your reflections on that, just watching what's going on, I guess, in Ukraine at the moment, but also in the context of the Australian election, where it seems (laughs) two things have happened. Labor actually committed to a big tech military project, and the coalition's dropped its drone Project, um, which was several billion dollars.
3: So, what's going on there? Well, just to, just to be precise, I'm, I'm not against drone warfare, and indeed, are you pro drone warfare?
0: Yeah,
3: I, I'm not, not pro drone warfare. I'm, I'm against autonomous warfare, against handing over the decision to to algorithms. Um, always, we should leave humans um, uh, in charge. And it's it's I think it's inevitable we're going to see more and more use of drones, and you see it in Ukraine, you see it in Syria and elsewhere. You see, you know, how did you took down the, the Russian warship? It was with a drone distraction. Um, so we're going to see more and more uses of drones. And, and, you know, Australia's again, doesn't know how, doesn't seem to know how to buy weapons. We've just canceled the 1.2 billion drone, drone program that we had um, in favor of, of spending on our cyber defense. We, we should spend more money on cyber defense, but we shouldn't do it at the expense of uh, weapons that will be useful, like drones. But again, you ask, you ask yourself, well, how did we end up spending 1.2 billion on 12 drones? Drones are supposed to be cheap and cheerful, not 100 million dollars each, which is more expensive. I looked it up; more expensive than an F-35 fighter with people on board. It so um, again, we just, just yeah, seem no, to have completely, completely stuffed up in how we procure weapons and how we. Uh, modernize our military.
1: You talk a bit about autonomous vehicles in your book and I think you're probably more of a fan of autonomous vehicles than I am (laughs) Um, and and partly that's because um, I feel like sometimes we think of utility in solving problems that without necessarily looking at the broader context for the problem you know there's a uh, understandably a desire to reduce road toll uh, which is huge and uh, often a bit of a silent problem uh, in some ways because we don't really acknowledge it and we attribute it to driver behavior and perhaps don't think about how we could do things differently and that there's an investment in autonomous vehicles on the basis that it will be reduced but to my mind sometimes these technological answers conceal the context of this problem like why are we building cities designed around car use and why are we building communities and and places where people live where the only place to the only way to get around is by a car that gives rise to these big road tolls and maybe there's alternatives to that and are we just doing boosterism for the automotive industry especially in a context where autonomous vehicles always feel two to three years away and I wondered if if that's part of the, the kind of techno optimism or utopianism that comes with this field, that sometimes we can try to solve one problem while realizing that there's a context in which that problem could be solved without this kind of technology, I don't know whether you had any thoughts on that.
3: I support your your claims that we you know we should be more worried about yeah. about um, our local neighbourhoods. I mean, certainly one of the one of the, the silver linings of the pandemic was we we realized that there were the importance of the parks in, in our local communities. We, we value the, the built environment around us, um, and we you know, we should do more to do that. But, but equally, um, I'm unashamed in thinking that we need to we need to use driver aids, not just autonomous vehicles, but driver aids to reduce the toll that, that um, traffic accidents have upon us. Um, a thousand people will die in road accidents in Australia in the next year. If you survive childbirth in Australia, your major cause of death. Until the age of about 35 is car traffic accident. It's not cancer, it's not anything else. It's being hit by um, a car. Um, and 95 percent of those accidents are, are caused by driver error. They're not caused by mechanical failure or trees falling over. It's caused by human stupidity. It's caused by humans who are tired, humans who are texting, humans who are unfortunately still sometimes drunk. Um, and that will go away. Um, we're increasingly relying upon those devices. And those are reducing you know, road traffic deaths are, are going down with those uh, with those aids that we now all assume are going to be there.
0: The background noise suggests you're about to embark on your book tour, Toby. Um, I guess um, my, my final question to round this out is, where do you want to see the public debate around AI go? And... I'm, and I, I go back to that thing, it's either great or terrible. And how do you actually build a bit more of a sense of human agency into the discussion?
3: I think I think you're right. It's, it's entirely about saying, well, we need to make the choices, that um, we don't want it to be the, what the tech industry forces upon us. It will be you know what sort of society do we want it to be to be. And you we can go back and look at history. I mean, we have a very good precedent here, which was the industrial revolution when we industrialized and we changed the nature of work we introduced factories we did a lot of things not to do with technology but to do to do with the society we built we we introduced unions and labor laws and the welfare state and universal education so that all of us got to rise on the prosperity that automation brought to to manufacturing and we needed to Think I think equally radically. We're going to go through an equally radical transformation, and we need to all think about how do we make sure that everyone is brought along. And that that isn't just technology. It's it's all about um, you know how how do we how do we make sure that the corporations' values are aligned with the public good, and that we share some of the benefits around.
0: Last thoughts and reflections, Josh and Lizzie?
2: Um, I was just thinking in terms of the um, automated vehicle discussion, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. I, I sort of take Toby's point about how these, you know, the revolutions kind of change, how people feel about it. But I, I feel like there's a sort of fight coming in if we do move to automatic vehicles, because it's one of those things where people just like to have control of what they're doing and like to drive and like to to be in charge. And um, Josh, I think... You're I, like,
3: you're not you're like that horse owner yes uh, (laughs) 150 years ago said no one's going to get off their horses they're they're not going to want this new technology coming along they want to be in charge of their own horse
2: i i I hope that that's it like because i can see you know particularly post um, like now that people are starting to go back into the office and things like that, but people are still quite scared of using public transport. That the amount of traffic that is on the road has gone up so much, and I was just thinking that if it was much more automated and much more, it would be much more efficient and things would be much better. I think, but um, I, I can still just see that that fight looming of, of the hurdle of people willing to relinquish control of driving.
1: Yeah, I feel oh. like as a as a class actions lawyer, <laughs> I, I think all the time about who's liable for these products and. Um, whether private companies are prepared to invest in the infrastructure if they're going to be held liable for when it it doesn't perform correctly. And I do wonder whether that becomes a a reason why it's endlessly put off, you know, and or it becomes the situation where if you're not using that autonomous functionality then it's on you rather than the maker of the product and how you pass these things out I I mean I think regulation in terms of making laws is one way in which we can regulate this but I I do actually think there's a role to play around holding companies responsible for products they create because they can be really harmful and um, often they you know the Pinto example which I did talk about in my book this case study that's used in law schools of how companies rush products to market with full knowledge that it will probably kill people and you know there are other products that actually do kill people but you know can we trust companies to do this work when people's lives are on the line i think there's a real question around that
3: interestingly lizzie the, the next thing to follow on in the eu after the EU ai act is one is a focus on product liability music for, to my ears sorts, toby for those sorts of for those sorts of reasons hey toby
0: thanks for your time i know it's always challenging to do it in the um the airport lounge and you've battled on manfully there with the the announcements in the background you sent me a bunch of invites can I share those in the chat with everyone if anyone wants to come to any broader discussions of your books or are they kind of special affairs I'll chuck them in the chat and there's a whole bunch of events including one that involves free breakfast which I'll be at so um yeah thank (laughs) you you so much for your time today good luck with the book and hey Lizzie and Josh thank you both for your time today and thanks everyone for joining us You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on April 29. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, go to our website, centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms is produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.